Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 through 24. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Hey, how's it going? Are we good? All right, me too. Uh, So yes, um, two or three of these verses, this is our third week looking at them. Um, Again, I I could do this a million times. There's so much stuff in, in each passage that I sometimes don't know how, how many angles I should come at it from, but, but I'm just going to do at least one more. Um, this one, today. And then uh, we're going to finish up chapter one today. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about, like I said, solitude. We're going to talk about narcissism. We're going to talk about noise and the noise around us and, and silence and solitude and some spiritual disciplines. So um, let's pray and then we'll get started, shall we? Father, we love you. We thank you for giving us a space to gather in. Thank you for bringing my brothers and sisters here. Calm us. Allow us to be present with you. Um, I ask that um, in this time that we are together, um, that we take a few hours out of our day and we center all of it on you, um, that we would find encouragement, that we would find uh, understanding that we need, and that more and more of our week would begin to look like this, just completely centered on you, um, all of our, our thoughts and minds on, on what, what are you trying to teach us through each daily event, and uh, give us the tools uh, to allow that to happen so we can be people of peace, and, uh, and that so we can bring this kingdom of yours into our world. Thank you. In your name, amen. So, um, Last week, I talked a lot about, um, if you weren't here last week uh, and, and, um, and you missed it, then you should go back and listen. However, you're going to miss all my drawings, so sorry. Um, but last week, I talked about Paul going to Arabia, what this means. He's sort of likening, likening himself to a lot of the, uh, the ancient prophets, specifically Elijah, um, and Elijah likening himself to sort of Phineas, and then some of the other things he said likened him to... Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he's pretty much saying, um, here's where I learned my information. Here's where I got it from. So um, let's look once again at verse uh, 16 and 17 here. Um, He says that God appeared to him, and he says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. So what he's saying is, he was not a follower of Jesus. He was actually the opposite. He was out to destroy this gospel, this Christianity, this message of, of Christ. And while he's traveling to the city of Damascus, Jesus appears to him on this road, blinds him. There's this huge vision that he has and, and, and all the guys with him. 
Um, and in five minutes, everything that he grew up knowing, everything that he believed, everything that he thought about God turned out to be wrong. And so he has this faith crisis. And everything that he thought he knew turns out to be wrong. Everything that he had heard from his parents, from his rabbis, from his spiritual teachers in his life was wrong. And he suddenly had nothing to go on except for this Jesus that appears to him. And so logically what I think I would have done is gone and found the people who knew Jesus because I have some serious questions about what is going on, about who is this guy, what, what is this, who is Jesus, what does this mean? Um, but he doesn't do that. And he writes to these people. He wants his audience to know that that's not what he did. Um, instead of going to find the other apostles, the people who knew Jesus and walked with him for about three years, um, he instead goes to Arabia. In, in, in chapter 4, there's a passage in chapter 4 that says basically what's in Arabia for him. Uh, he says um, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And so he went to Sinai. Why would he go to Sinai? I talked about this a lot last week, quick refresher. Um, It's where the Israelites heard from God. It's where Elijah heard from God. The wilderness was a very important thing. It's where this place was where God spoke to his people. And he could not any longer listen to the words of people. He needed to listen to the words of the God of the universe. He needed to understand and have meaning. So he took this experience that he had, and he ventures off to this mountain, And he spends some time there. We don't know how long he spent there, but he spent some time there. And he spends time in in solitude by himself, pondering. I mean, if you read the book of Romans, you can understand what he's doing. He's pondering everything that he knows about the Old Testament, the experiences of the ancient peoples with God. And And then he's pondering the gospel, the message of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, what this means. And he's coming to these conclusions. And he spends tons and tons of time meditating upon the word of God. So, um, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about solitude. Um, because solitude is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that we have that has been given to us. But solitude is also, um, it's become the least practiced, the least understood um, discipline that we have. Most people, when they think of solitude, they confuse solitude with loneliness. Solitude is not loneliness. And loneliness is not at all solitude. These are not the same thing. Um, Solitude is is the opposite of loneliness. It's fulfillment. It's inner fulfillment by yourself with who you are in God. Um, Solitude frees you from bondage. That's what it does. Bondage from what? Bondage to other people. Solitude frees us of the constant enslavement that we have to other people, to their view of us, to how they look at us, the things they say about us, their image of us, um, and how we construct that image for these people to see. Solitude is the discipline which tears all this down and gives you freedom. We don't realize how in bondage we are. Um, Henry Nouwen writes and says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to lead a spiritual life. Why is that? Um, Because our spiritual life is not it does not come from the outside in. Spiritual, living a life that is spiritual is not coming to worship gatherings. It is not serving the poor. It is not um, giving alms, whatever, tithe. How, how, it's none of this. Your spiritual life comes from inside what Peter calls your pneuma. Um, there's a passage, if you remember, at the beginning of First Peter, I talked about um, 
the pneuma, the soul. Actually, it's the word that they, they describe as... Um, well, if you read the book of Psalms, there's this particular psalm that, that says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfall. And so what you can picture is when you, when you read this psalm, the writer of the psalm, you picture them sort of sitting at a waterfall, like at the base of a waterfall, and the roar of it is, is coming over the cliffs and splashing down the water, and it's noisy. And in some sense, it's terrifying because it's huge, and it could crush you, and it could drown you. Um, and it's there, and it's, it just gives you this sense of awe and wonder. And he says, there's something inside of me when I gather by these powerful places in this world that calls out to a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose. Um, and the deep that is within me, the pneuma within me, calls out to the pneuma in the universe. At, at the roar of a waterfall. There's times in my life where I've experienced this. I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and felt this. I've stood and caught my baby as it's being born and felt this. That's what this is. There's something inside of you that says, this is meaningful. And there's something else at play. Deep calls to deep. That's, what, that's where the spiritual life comes from. And so unless you ever spend time and, and, and tap into that inside of you and you ponder and meditate upon the scriptures and the gospel and life and what God has done for you, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, um, your spiritual life will never really be what it should be and what it could be. Um, and so the problem is, we have these crises like Paul has. Um, we have questions or a crisis of faith. Uh, we have a question about God. We, sometimes we're trying to form an opinion in ourselves about cultural viewpoints or morality claims. And what do we do? We have these questions. What do we do? Uh, we read books. We read blogs. We talk to pastors and elders. We go to church gatherings. And, and uh, we read the writings of, of, of philosophers or, or, or theologians. And typically... Instead of coming to a conclusion based upon the gospel and what the gospel says, we come to a conclusion based on, I read this, and it makes sense, so I'm taking it, and I'm making it mine. And so most of the things when we are asked questions about what we believe, the answers that we're giving are not actually our answers. They are answers from other people that they have written. And we did not come to these conclusions about our faith and about our God um, based upon meditating upon the words of God based upon practicing the spiritual disciplines in any way, shape, or form. We didn't practice fasting and experience a little bit of suffering. And, and a few days into fasting, if you've ever done that, sort of the, the feelings of lightness and almost euphoric feelings that you get from this. Um, we, we didn't practice um, silence. Um, we didn't practice serving and giving. Um, there are these ways we are meant to learn about God, and we learn the path by walking. Right. So um, oftentimes we just read and we make it ours. You see, the problem is that there's, there's two omniscient beings in the world. There's God, the omniscient being, and then there's Google, the omniscient being. And when we have questions, there's two different paths. One is very difficult and very time-consuming. We could get in a daily rhythm of spending time alone with God, of speaking to Him, of praying, of reading. Um, this is what uh, Richard Rohr calls jumping in the river. Um, and every day when you open and you read, you're not looking for anything in particular. You're just jumping in the river and letting it take you where it takes you. And then the crisis arises, and you have, in the back of your mind, this passage comes to mind. I read this. I think I can apply this here. Um, David went through this. Jesus taught about this. Um, There's healing in this. I've seen this in the Scriptures. But instead, we don't have to remember anything. We don't have to study anything because we have this unlimited source of knowledge 
in our pocket. We have a question, we pull it out, and we read someone else's thoughts, we Google it, and we put it back away and say, there it is. And we have lost this connection to our souls and, and this ability to think and ponder and meditate on the Word of God that we used to have as a people. And when all of the knowledge is right at our fingertips, there's no reason to put it in our brains. Um, and if there is anything we can learn from Paul, it is independence. Independence is vital. Independence is lost today, though. Um, we are tribal somehow. Somehow we've gone tribal again. We've become people who cannot make up our own minds on anything. And Paul, when he writes, he specifically tells them, he, he goes out of his way to let them know, I did not learn these things about God from the apostles. Yes, the apostles and I agree on who Jesus was. They learned about it from spending time with Jesus. I learned about it through silence and solitude and listening to God and pondering the gospel. And when they met together, they realized they came to the same conclusions about who Jesus was. Yes, the Spirit of God is real. Yes, he's communicating to people. And so Paul uh, writes in verse 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia, and then returned again to Damascus. And then in 19 and 20, he says this, I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He wants them to understand that theological laziness is unacceptable, that they cannot live this way. They cannot just listen to the word of the person teaching and say, well, I believe this. Why? Because my pastor believes it. I could be absolutely lying to you day in and day out. Do you realize that? And many pastors are. And so you have to have this independence, which, look, um, denominations are great. Um, you know, theological groups are great. Calvinists, Arminius, Reformed, uh, just all these different groups. They're, they're great. Um, but in these groups, they should be made up of absolute independent people who have come to these conclusions on their own. They should. Um, but what we have today is, is, is something completely different. We have uh, what actually researchers, a lot of research has been done on, on the way we communicate today, which is completely different. Um, and one of the problems is, honestly, it's with, with, what social media has done to our communication as human beings. Um, and there's been a lot of research done on this. And let me, let me show you something here, a bit of a, bit of a, a graph um, Newman's spiral of silence. So in, there, there's, there's like two different views in, in most, um, on most issues. There is what is, you know, mass media is projecting as the dominant view. This is what, by and large, the majority of people hold. And then there is this interpersonal support for deviant opinion. So there's this, there's this dominant view, and then there's this deviant view. They're not the same. And the people you know are believing one way, the mass media is teaching you the other way, and maybe you want to trade support for one or the other. Um, maybe you have a dominant view, you want to switch to a, a deviant view, or vice versa. The problem is, it's coming at you from both sides, and so in, in the middle you see the amount of people not openly expressing deviant opinions, and or changing from deviant to the major opinion, the dominant opinion. And so what happens is, on social media, they found that most people, 90-something percent of people, are only posting what they think other people want to hear. And then everyone else is only posting to you what you want to hear. And then we do it, and they do it, and we do it, and they do it. And everyone is terrified to say anything about anything. And nobody is really known. The conversation dies. And what you end up with 
is millions and millions of people who can vote one way and then won't admit it. This is what happens. When we are independent, when we are feeding ourselves, we come to find who we are in Christ and we find the boldness to stand up and say, here's what the grace of Jesus has done for me and so here's my response to this. And we can say it in this way that is loving, not divisive, not venomous. And then conversations can happen. There is, I can't talk about spiritual disciplines without, of course, talking about my favorite author, uh, William Barclay. Um, um, yeah, no, I'm sorry, Richard Foster, who, who wrote this incredible book called, yeah, I know. I got several authors I really like. Richard Foster, who wrote this book called The Celebration of Disciplines. Um, someone earlier, someone asked me um, once, a friend of mine, he was like, hey, you ever read this book, Celebration of Disciplines? I was like, uh, twice a year for the last decade. Yes, I have. I've read it. I'm familiar with it. Would you like me to quote it to you? Um, and so he, he opens up all the disciplines and he talks about them all. Um, and the chapter on solitude, absolutely brilliant. He puts it in, in the classification of an external discipline, but then he spends the whole chapter talking about how it's an internal discipline. Um, and here's something he says. Solitude is more a state of mind and heart than it is a place. There is a solitude of the heart that can be maintained at all times. Crowds or the lack of them have little to do with inward attentiveness. It is quite possible to be a desert hermit and never experience solitude. But if we possess inward solitude, we do not fear being alone, for we know that we are not alone. Neither do we fear being with others, for they do not control us. In the midst of noise and confusion, we are settled into a deep inner silence. Whether alone or among people, we always carry with us a portable sanctuary of the heart. So in a crowd of people, all saying one thing, we're all saying different things. You don't have to divide yourself into camps. You can be who you are. And the inner sanctuary in the soul will give you the confidence to say, as a follower of Jesus, here's what I think. And in all love and in all gratitude and respect for you, I disagree, but that's okay. Let's talk. I want to hear your opinion. And when you are able to be content with who you are, you are actually able to have a conversation that can change you and change them. The church has a really hard time with this. A really hard time. We have created churches which are basically, they have become these sanctuaries all over cities where nobody is free to ask any questions or doubt anything or question anything because we're all terrified of the answer that they will come to. Instead, what we should be is a fellowship of difference, um, a body which is made up of different parts who come together and we say, and we have found life in Jesus. And there's something about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that when we lean into this and we live by this, uh, it changes us. And so there's all these other things and we are confident in who we are. We find our identity in Jesus. And so now we can sit and have open conversation and dialogue. Um, and we're both just, solid as iron in who we are, and now iron can sharpen iron, and we can change each other. In love, not go to war in camps. Um, instead, what we have is, is absolute narcissism. I mean, when, when, we're, all, when we're all self-editing ourselves, I, um, I pronounced his name wrong at first service, and one of our philo- phil- philosophy PhDs corrected me, uh, Michel Foucault, I called him Michel Foucault, whatever. Michael Foucault, um, <laughs> the French guy, 
um, he writes about how this is how tyranny comes upon us. When everyone is afraid to have an opinion and to share it and to offer it and to ask for feedback. When we are all self-editing, tyranny will come upon us all. Solitude is the gift that frees us from bondage to each other and frees us up to serve each other and wash the feet of each other. Now, um, I have, as you, many of you may know, every, as many Sundays as I can, I have Documentary Sunday. Um, I go home from church, I lay down on the couch, I turn on a documentary. I'll just pick a random documentary. Um, if it's good, I'll watch it. If it's bad, I'll just fall asleep. Win-win, everybody's happy. And uh, last year, yes, I did watch the Justin Bieber documentary. <laughs> they grow up so fast, right? They, uh, um, they start just making decisions on their own at early ages. Um, so, now, there's, there was, I actually enjoyed it. As an independent person, I will admit to you, I enjoyed the Justin Bieber documentary. And I have no shame in admitting this to you. And apparently it's cool now to listen to him again. Who knew? Um, so there's a scene in this documentary that made me like profoundly sad. Um, he's at his, this hotel and he's up on maybe you know, fifth or sixth floor. It kind of looked like this. And, and he opens the window and there's all the girls down there screaming, Dad, Dad, uh, holding up their signs. Um, and every time he opens the window, they kind of make a lot of noise for him. And he's talking about these fans um, and he, and he looks, and he actually, he opens up, he's looking at them all, and he says, you know, I can't, I can't sleep unless I know they're out there. Can't sleep unless I know they're out there. Um, you see, in the absence of independence and solitude and knowing who you are in Christ, um, we end up with absolute narcissism. We, we have these idols and we hold them up. It's, it's an idol of ourselves. And we, say, we, we dress it up and we decorate it. And we put ourselves out there and we say, tell me I'm cool. Tell me I'm, I mean something. Tell me I'm, I'm worth loving. Tell me I'm worth listening to. Tell me. Please tell me. Um, we fish for compliments. We talk about our accomplishments. We're needing others to comment on our clothes, our music choices, our travels, our, our diet habits, our workout routines, our habits, whatever it is. And, and, and the narcissist needs you to tell them who they are. The person of solitude knows who they are and is therefore able to help others. The narcissist needs you to tell. I can't sleep unless they're out there. I need them to tell me who I am every single day. And if they're not there, I don't know who I am and I cannot sleep at night because I'm terrified by the thought that I don't know who I am by myself. Guys, be very, very careful when you find yourself asking everyone else what they think. Be very careful. Why is that so important to you? Ask yourself that question. I think you will find some idols down there. Um, and so there is... Okay, let me tell you a story. There's a, in 1933, December 24th, 1933, there was a train, um, I, f- I forget which town it's in, but it's traveling and it, and it hits a little girl in a blue dress and, and she dies and everyone gets off the train and everyone runs out and they see her and they pick her up and they, 
they spend the next few days trying to figure out who she is, and nobody has any idea who she is, and they lay her um, on display uh, for two weeks, and they invite everyone from surrounding towns, tell us who this little girl is, and nobody ever could figure out who she was, how old she was, where she was from. Just nobody knew who she was. And so the town got together, and they, and they raised up a bunch of money, and they put the money together, and they raised sort of a, a tombstone in the middle of the town square where they, where they buried her, and they wrote, In memory of the girl in blue, killed by a train, December 24th, 1933. And on the bottom they wrote, Unknown but not forgotten. It's a terrifying thing to think that somebody could die, and it's tragic to think that somebody could die and be completely unknown, and that it would be as if they were never here. They didn't make an impact in anybody's life um, to where they, they would be remembered. They didn't say anything that was, that was worth remembering, and so nobody could look at her and say, oh, she said this to me the other day, or she did this. Or, just nobody knows who she is, and she's dead. And as terrifying as that is, I know that tons and tons of people that are on this path In the spiral of silence, tons and tons and tons of people will absolutely die and never be known, really known. Nobody will ever really know who they are, really know their thoughts. They will only have these idols that we've been holding up and everyone looking at and saying, um, there's just this surface level stuff. But I I tell my wife all the time, by the time I die, I I want to be known. I want people to know my thoughts. And, and, and we, we know people that don't open up and they don't say anything. Um, they'll just surface talk all the time and you try to go deeper and they just won't go deeper. And you think in your mind, like, why don't you want to be known? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of exposing? You need, this is what happens. This is, narcissism causes this. It's the opposite of solitude. It's the opposite of being a person who spends time regularly in the river, in the stream, pondering the gospel and understanding who they are. And the thing people like Justin Bieber need to hear is that no one can tell you who you are. God tells you who you are. He tells you you're worth creating a universe for and putting here. You are worth um, dying for. You are worth coming and walking in this mess with you. Uh, You are worth resurrection. You are worth a future. You are worth all of this eternity, eternal life. You're worth this. And, and, and when we sit and we ponder and we spend time in solitude, this is what we remember. This is what we learn. The things that we've forgotten, that our identity is not found in all of these things that we create. Our identity is found in Jesus. And, and, what, and that's what the gospel is here to tell you. Your identity is not found in any of this. And so you can stand in a crowd of people with whom you disagree and you can love them. You can wash their feet. And you don't have to separate yourselves from people. You don't have to. Let's talk about noise. Um, two summers ago, I was with uh, a few members, members of the band. We were playing shows in, in Germany. There's this town called Dresden, and it's during the day, incredibly noisy, incredibly beautiful. Um, but what we noticed was at nighttime, we were walking. The sun would go down. We'd get up. We'd, we'd take a walk at like 2 in the morning because jet lag. Didn't know what to do. Um, so walking around 2 in the morning, and we realized how incredibly quiet the place is at night. Incredibly quiet. We found ourselves whispering in this huge city and walking lightly so as not to disturb the city of Dresden. It, it was incredibly quiet. I couldn't sleep without turning on a noisemaker. Um, this one time, it, there was like this storm and there was this there was lightning and then there was this thunder and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled. And we just heard this thunder for like minutes just echoing forever. And I woke up the next morning and said, did you hear that? Yeah, that was crazy. And I never realized how noisy we have it here. Uh, one of the other disciplines is silence. And silence is not just 
one part of silence is holding your mouth and not defending yourself when people are attacking you. It's, it's the discipline of silence, allowing who you are as a person, as a follower of Jesus, to stand on its own, not defending yourself. Another aspect of silence is literal silence. Silence and solitude tended to go together, and people would sit in absolute silence where they would hear from God. Teresa of Avila writes, Settle yourself in solitude, and you will come upon him in yourself. When we are quiet, when you stop talking, when you begin listening, and pondering and meditating on the scriptures, it's, you find God there. Oftentimes we cannot hear from God because we are too busy talking to him, talking to everyone else, allowing everyone else to talk to us. Silence and solitude are a very important thing. Um, I think one of the reasons that we create so much noise and distraction all around us is to cover our pain. It's, Instead of seeking healing, we seek noise. So um, I never realized how many um, tombstones I put on this wall. I do a lot. Here's another one. Um, I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, yeah, I've put like a, a thousand tombstones on the wall. I, whenever I go to a, a we, me, and my, me and my wife, we go on vacation with, with the family. Whenever there's like an, a really old cemetery, I'm like, I got to go walk over there. I have to go walk through it. I just got to read stuff. I don't know what it is. Um, there's something about it. It puts a little more weight. But there's this, there's, this, um, there's this saying we find in a lot of really old tombstones. We don't see it much anymore. Uh, we actually see it in really bad tattoos. Uh, it says, gone but not forgotten, right? Uh, or decals on the back of a car. Gone but not forgotten. This is a, a, think about this for a second. So they're gone. They're, they're not physically here anymore, but they're not forgotten. You carry them with you. Um, you have these memories of this person that you lost. Um, you, you can hear something and see something or experience something and say, this is how they would have acted. This is how they would have responded. They, my dad would have loved that joke. My, my mother would have really enjoyed this trip and, and this location, this place. I wish you could have seen it. And we know how they would have reacted. They're gone, but they're not forgotten. You can only get to this place if you spend time in mourning. Death used to be much more a part of our society. Um, we used to not marginalize it and hide it. People used to, a um, hundred years ago... Um, Grandmother would just pass away in the back bedroom and family would be there. And it was a thing. There was a process. Um, it was like laboring. You labor to come into the world. You labor to exit the world. And there was, they knew what they were looking at and what it was like. Um, today we're so separated from it. It's a medical event. Um, and so it's harder for us to mourn. And so what we end up with a lot of times today is this saying completely flipped around, which would be forgotten but not gone. Somebody dies and we spend all of our time... Um, trying to forget. And so we go to work. We work really hard. We spend a lot of time on Facebook. We, maybe we drink. We go party constantly. You can't stop. Because the second you stop, the second you stop listening to the podcast, the second you stop listening to the music, you, get, you, you lay in bed at night and it's silent. You realize they're not forgotten. It's still there and it still hurts. And because it still hurts, because you, we don't have a, a good mourning process anymore, um, the healing never comes. And so we carry these people with us. They're gone. And, and, and this isn't just with death. This is life events. Whatever you're going through, whatever the big tragic thing is, oftentimes you ask people, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just trying, to, just trying to work hard, man. Keep my mind busy. No, no. Solitude is the gift God has given us to ponder meaning and to ponder love, to ponder hope, to ponder resurrection, to ponder forgiveness. And to meditate upon the things of God and, and you, you think about the stories of Jesus that you've read and, and the ways he brought healing to the people around him, the way he responded to people. Um, 
and the event, the thing of pain, is no longer forgotten. It is remembered, but it's gone. And, and when something is gone and not forgotten, instead of forgotten and not gone, you can carry it with you in a healthy way. Well, I went through that once and I learned from it. I did this, I went through this event, and it was, it was incredibly difficult, but I, I spent a lot of time with God, and I learned from it. And now, you could not pay me to go down that road again. I will not do it, because I learned something. Instead, things are forgotten and not gone. And then we are doomed to repeat over and over again the sins that we struggled with. How many of you have had something you've been trying to quit since you were 16 and now you're in your late 20s or 30s and you're still struggling with it? Yes. You just try to keep busy, right? Silence and solitude, the spiritual disciplines are the exercises that we have been given to tone and strengthen our spiritual life, our spiritual body. And when we are healthy, when we have been filled up in this way, we are free to pour ourselves out for other people. Um, so silence and solitude, it, it doesn't just help us with the past. What Paul was doing, what Paul was experiencing when he, he said, I don't need opinions, I'm going to go and spend time with God. I have the scriptures that I've memorized. I mean, he was a rabbi um, by the age of 14. Anyone who was a rabbi by the age of 14 had the entire Pentateuch memorized. We could never attain that today. And so he had the teachings of God with him. And so he was reading the Bible in his mind, talking to God. And so it not only helps you recover from the pain of the past, it also prepares you for the future. Jesus himself practiced this. The first thing, um, if you go to the, to the, the start of Jesus' ministry in all four Gospels, um, and you look at what he did right before he started his ministry, what did he do? He went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasted and prayed. And in this desert, you see him dealing with all the temptations that ministry brings, the temptations for power, temptations for money, temptations for lusts of the flesh, and he deals with them all. And the tempter comes and says, here's this, here's this, and he's got the scriptures inside, and they're there, and he's been spent time in the river, and so he knows how to respond. And he dealt with these things, and so he was prepared, and he was strong spiritually strong to enter into the ministry. And then regularly, what do you see? There's one point where Jesus is walking through a crowd of people and there's such devout followers of his that the scriptures say they were going to grab him and force him to be their king. I don't know what this looks like. You're going to put him on a throne and tie him up and put a crown on his head. I don't know. And say, hey, you're a king and what should we do? But this is what they were going to do. And it says that Jesus escaped. I mean, that's really tempting. Someone came up and said, hey, you want to be the king of our country? Okay, why not? Um... And Jesus, it says Jesus disappeared into the crowd, and he hid, went off to be by himself to deal with the temptation that's there. Um, we have regular instances where it, it tells us that Jesus was known for rising up early in the morning and spending time in the gardens in prayer. Uh, there's one part where the crowds are chasing Jesus down, and he, and he looks around, and, and the, the rush that would come over you, you know, the Justin Bieber rush of all the people screaming, Jesus runs with his disciples. He says, get me in this boat. He gets in the boat. He paddles across the lake and goes and spends some time by himself. Um, the day before the crucifixion, we find Jesus in the garden, knowing what's coming and praying and preparing for it, spending time alone. Um, silence and solitude not only, not only like, helps us heal from the past, it also prepares us for the future. And when we are full, when we have spent time with the Almighty Father and we have come to peace with who we are in Him and we've accepted His grace, we are filled up so that we can pour ourselves out for the world around us. Many of us have nothing to pour out. 
And so, however this looks for you, I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know what your spiritual life is like. Only you do. But there's something fascinating. Um, I mentioned earlier the omniscience of God. If you've ever spent time in my premarriage counseling, um, I, I spent some time talking about how all the research that has been done um, on relationships shows that to have a passionate marriage, you have to have intimacy. Intimacy is, is the ingredient that brings about passion. Intimacy is it's not a sexual thing at all. It's simply knowledge. It's knowing someone. If you take two people who are racists and they hate each other and you set them down and you have them tell each other their stories from birth until the age they are now, you hear about their, their childhood, where they went to school, the tragedies, the joys about their parents, the way they were raised, their favorite songs, their favorite movies, their favorite books. By the time they get to modern day, they will not hate each other because this is how the human mind was wired. When we hear people's stories, when we get to know them, we cannot hate them anymore. And so this is why doctrine is incredibly important. Doctrine is really important, not because it, it's just things you need to know about God, because it, 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 it tells you who God is, who you are, and how you relate. And so when we talk about the omniscience of God, we're talking about a God who infinitely knows you, which means he infinitely loves you. He knows you more than anyone, and so he loves you more than anyone. In a marriage, you will find as you grow and you change, you keep learning, you keep talking, you keep learning about each other, and the passion grows. And if you don't have that passion, if you don't spend time with the other person learning new things about the other person, what you end up with is two people end up living in a house who do not know each other and do not love each other. We have a God who infinitely knows you, each and every one of us, and so he infinitely loves us. That's where we find our identity. And you don't need anyone to tell you who you are. The gospel has already done that. And so we're going to take communion. It's the only right response to remind ourselves once again that the body of Christ, communion servers, you guys can go ahead and uh, prepare, that the body of Christ was broken for you, the blood of Christ was poured out for you so that you could find peace and healing, healing from your past, preparation for your future, and be reminded that resurrection is the end. And so um, we take communion every single week. There's bread, there's wine. The bread is the body of Christ broken for you. The wine is the blood of Christ spilled for you. We just take some bread, we dip it in the wine glass, and we, and we eat it. And uh, it's very symbolic. It's, 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 uh, we're taking the gospel down inside of us. We're asking God to touch the parts of our life that have not yet been touched by the gospel. And we gain a better view of Christ and ourselves. If you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there is a, a prayer room there. Someone will be there to pray for you. Um, take some time, and uh, I'll close us in a word of prayer. And we'll talk to Jesus. Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are, what you've done for us, and who you've made us to be. Thank you for the gift that is uh, this place, this room, these people. Thank you for the ways that uh, you, we have sharpened each other, that we all learn from each other. Help us to all learn to fill ourselves up and become solitary followers of Christ so that each of us has something to offer. We can listen and we can respond and we don't need to speak and have someone agree with us. We don't need them to tell us that we're right, that we're wrong. We don't need them to tell us who we are because we have found that in you. And when we find that we are wrong, whether through conversation or confrontation, let us see it. Let us see it as truth and let's be honest and let us repent and change because we are independent 
people and followers of you. And bind us together in unity and hope and faith. Thank you. In your name. Amen.